Life podcast. We truly hope you'll be inspired and challenged today. Now, let's dive into this message with the family at Pleasant Ridge. If you have your Bibles, let's go ahead and turn to Colossians chapter number 2. Colossians chapter number 2. And uh, we're going to read here our text, uh, verses uh, 13 through 15, Colossians 2. Paul writes, And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made us alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses. By canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands, this he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Paul had just mentioned, we looked at last week in verse 12 about this baptism and how that baptism pictures our salvation when we died with Christ and how we were resurrected with Christ. And through God's grace in uh, saving us, we are identified with Jesus in his death and his resurrection. And Paul is continuing to tell us a little bit more about this work of Christ that God has done uh, in our lives And if you remember, Paul is dealing with these false teachers in this church that were not only attacking the person of Christ, but they were attacking the work of Christ and what Christ had accomplished. And so he's going into a little bit more depth here in uh, verses 13 through 15. And you'll see this uh, later on uh, that we'll look at in a couple weeks to come in verse 16. He says, therefore, right, therefore, everything I've told you in verse 16, therefore, Do not let anybody pass judgment on you on what you're doing as a believer, whether you're uh, eating in questions of food and drink or regard to festival or new moon or Sabbath. So he's trying to help them understand of how important the work of Christ is in their life. And this morning we're going to look at the power of Jesus. And if I were to ask you, what power does Jesus have in your life? What power does he have? As believers in Jesus, we need to remind ourselves constantly of the power that Jesus has and what he has done through the gospel in bringing us to salvation. But also, we ought to be reminding ourselves of the continued power that Jesus has, as not only is the gospel is good to those that believe, right, but it is a power that keeps us and continues to mature us and changing us into Christ's likeness. That's the power of Jesus. That's what he's doing. And if you're a believer in Jesus, not only if you believe the gospel that Christ saved you, but also Jesus is doing a work in your life now continually. He who began a good work in you will what? Perform it until the day of Jesus Christ. And so God is continually working in your life this power, this wonderful power that uh, Jesus has. And this was all brought about because of Jesus' death and resurrection. And uh, so Paul is trying to help them understand this. 
You know, I believe that everybody in this world has three crucial needs. Number one, they are spiritually dead, alienated from God, so they need new life. Secondly, they are under God's just condemnation because of their sin, so they need forgiveness. And thirdly, they are living under Satan's power in this domain of darkness, so they need deliverance and victory over the forces of evil. In our text that we're going to look at here this morning, Paul is actually going to deal with every single one of those three needs. And so Paul is going to show these believers, and he is showing us the superiority of who Jesus is, that he is superior over all. He is superior over death. He is superior over life. He is superior over all these evil forces. He has victory over all of them. You see, empty religion has no saving power. But Christ, crucified and risen from the dead, is all-powerful. There are some of you here this morning that are still dead in your trespasses and sins. You have yet to believe the gospel. You have yet to bow your heart and your mind, and your will to Jesus Christ and believe what Christ has done for you. And if that's you here this morning, I pray that you pay extra careful attention to what Christ is saying, to what God is saying, to what the Scriptures are teaching about your spiritual lost condition and your need for Jesus. For those of us in here that know Jesus, this is a great reminder to remind us of the powerful working of Christ not only what he has done in our life, but what he is continuing to do in our life. And so this is what I'd like for you to take away with you this morning. In Jesus, we have new life, forgiveness, and victory. So let's take a look here. Number one, in Jesus we have new life. Listen to what Paul says here, I'm beginning with verse number 12 to tie this into context. Having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God, who raised him from the dead, and you, who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him. Now, there are three truths to grasp here. Number one, if you don't know Jesus, you are dead. And you say, now, Mike, come on, I'm not dead. I got up this morning, I ate breakfast, I dressed myself, I got in the car, I drove, I do things, I work around the house, I, well, I even may work out. But if you don't know Jesus, spiritually speaking, you are dead. You are a walking corpse. You are part of the walking dead. Okay? Now, Paul could have used less severe language here than this. I mean, if he wanted to, he could have said, when you were apart from Christ, he brought you near. That's certainly true. He could have said, when you were alienated from Christ, he reconciled you to himself. That's also true. But here Paul uses the word dead to describe our condition before we met Christ. He uses the same language in Ephesians 2.1. He says, you were dead in your trespasses and sins. Where did all this death begin? Well, it began back in Genesis. In Genesis 2.17, before Adam and Eve sinned, God told them that if they ate of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, they would die. Death in the Bible always means separation. That's what death is. 
When a loved one, a person that we know uh, very well, when they die, when they pass away, we are separated from that individual. And that's what death is. It's separation. Now, when Adam and Eve sinned that day, they didn't fall over dead, but they were separated from God. And God's trying to help us understand that in our lost condition before we met Christ, we were separated from God. We had no hope. We were under condemnation because of our sin. And so their bodies, Adam and Eve's bodies, did become subject to the process of illness and aging that ultimately did end in their final death. But they were separated from God spiritually. When a person dies physically, his soul is separated from his body. And to be spiritually dead means to be separated from the living God, the author and the giver of all life. And so if we die physically while we are still spiritually dead, we will be eternally separated from God under His wrath, which would be the most horrible existence imaginable. Death is an ugly thing, and we should not minimize the horror of that word. A dead body is foul and it's corrupt. In fact, if the Jews touched an unclean body, a dead body, uh, they were ceremonially defiled, is what uh, Leviticus 21, 1-4 teaches us. We embalm dead bodies, try to make them look as lifelike as possible. In fact, there are even companies that will, will take your loved one and they will pose them like riding on a motorcycle or sitting at a table playing cards. But they're dead. There's no life in them whatsoever. There's nothing pleasant about a dead body. Paul says here that we were spiritually dead because of two causes. Notice what he says here. Verse 13. You were dead. Why? Because of your trespasses. This refers to sins that we have committed. The second phrase, the uncircumcision of our flesh, especially mentioned to the Gentile Colossians here, that before they met Christ, they were at that time separated from Christ, excluded from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world, Ephesians 2.12 teaches us. But also this uncircumcision of the flesh refers to the sinful nature of, that we inherited from Adam. When Adam sinned, his sin was imputed. We inherited it to the entire human race. Turn with me over to Romans chapter number 5. Let's take a look here what, uh, uh, what Paul teaches us about this inherited sin nature. Romans chapter number 5. Now look with me in verse, uh, beginning in verse number 12. Paul says, therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, who's that one man? Adam. And death through sin. And so death spread to all men because all sins. Where did you get your sin nature from? Your father. Where did he get it from? His father. Where did he get it from? His father. And on and on and on and on and on it goes. You inherited a sin nature all stemming all the way back to Adam. He says, for sin indeed, in verse 13, was in the world before the law was given. 
But sin is not counted where there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. But the free gift is not like the trespass, for if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. And the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin, for the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation, but the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. For if because of one man's trespass, Death reigned through that one man. Much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, so by one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. Now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. So that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Paul's trying to tell us something here, that either you are in Adam, and you're continuing in the ways of Adam, you're continuing in that inherited sin nature, or you are in Christ. There's no straddling the fence on this. Either you know Jesus and you're in Christ, or you don't know Jesus and you're in Adam. And you're separated from God because of your sin. And Paul is telling us, saying, listen, he says, you have inherited this, you were brought into this, and you are condemned in this because you are dead in your trespasses. Now notice that verse 13, and you, you, that's personal, isn't it? You. I can almost see the apostle pointing the finger saying, you, 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 me. I'm dead in my trespasses and sins without Christ. So apart from Christ, we had two serious problems We're spiritually dead because of our sins and because of our sin nature, what we got at birth. We aren't sinners because we sin. We sin because by nature we are sinners. Sometimes people say it's unfair of God to impute Adam's sin to the entire human race. My reply is, well, first a word of caution. It's never right to accuse the Almighty of unfairness. What's fair? If we all got what we rightfully fairly deserve, we would all be turned into hell. What's fair? Whose standard? Your standard or God's standard? Second, do you think that you would have done better than Adam in obeying God? I don't think so. So if you have a high estimate of your own self in that, you definitely do not understand your own sin nature. You see, these two aspects of sin are actual sins that stem from our sin nature, meaning that we had a very serious problem. Adding good deeds to our sinful nature cannot solve that problem. Remember, you, can't put a tuxedo, you can put a tuxedo on a pig, 
But what happens? That pig returns back to wallowing in the mud. You can dress a sinner in good deeds, but unless you change their hearts, they will still go back to sinning. Also, all the good deeds in the world cannot eradicate the charges that are against us, the trespasses that condemn us to be separated from God. They do not raise the dead sinner to spiritual life. He needs resurrection. Here's the second thing. Through Christ's resurrection, we too can be resurrected to new life in Him. Take a look at Colossians 2.12 again. Look what he says. He says in the second part of there, in which you were also raised with Him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised Him from the dead. You see... Even our faith does not originate with us. Did you get that? Who gave you the faith to believe in Christ? Did you have the faith? Or was it God's free gift? It's God's free gift. Listen to Ephesians 2, 8, 9 states this pretty clearly. For by grace are you saved through faith. And this is not from yourselves. What is not from yourselves? The grace and the faith. It is the gift of God. It is not from works so that no one can boast. And so God gives you the faith to believe. It's a gift. Philippians 1.29 states, For it has been granted to you not only to believe in Christ, but also to suffer in Him. And so here in verse 13, Paul attributes our new life totally to God. He made you alive. Could you ever imagine if we had a person who uh, maybe uh, was dead, maybe we had a funeral here, and the person was lying there in the casket, and we were to go up to him and say, hey, why don't you just wake up? Get up. Come on, start breathing. Would it work? God is the one who gives life. God is the one that gives us the faith to believe. He gives us the grace. He resurrects us to new life. And so either you are dead or alive. That's it. There's only two conditions. Either you're spiritually dead in Adam or because God made you alive, you're in Christ. There are no other categories. If you're in Christ, it's because it's of God's doing. Look at the third thing here. Only God can resurrect the dead. What can a dead man do? Stink. That's it. Becoming a Christian isn't a matter of deciding to turn over a new leaf. It isn't a self-improvement project or a resolution to try harder. No amount of persuasion can talk a spiritual corpse into spiritual life because dead sinners cannot understand God's truth. Listen to what 1 Corinthians 2.14 says. The unbeliever, the dead sinner, the unbeliever does not receive the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, and he cannot understand them because they are spiritually discerned. In John 8.43, Jesus said, Why don't you understand what I'm saying? It is because you cannot accept my teaching. Those that are without Christ do not have spiritual ears to hear. 
No amount of efforts to the part of the corpse will bring about his own resurrection because corpses aren't able to do anything except stink. God must impart new life to a dead sinner by his power. You see, there's a huge difference between death and life. Spiritually, there's a huge difference between dead and religion and new life in the risen Savior. Do you have new life in Christ? Is that a reality? Or are you still spiritually dead? Has God made you alive from the dead so that you respond by saying, Yes, Lord, I believe in you. I receive you as my Savior and Lord. If not, you may just be a good religious person who is, walking, who is a walking spiritual corpse. You need life from God. John 1, 12 through 13 reminds us in this way. Jesus here said, or John writes, he says, But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor the will of the flesh, nor the will of man, but of God. The only way that you're ever going to be born again is not in your own doing, but because of God's doing. God is the one who saves us. God is the one who resurrects us to new power. God is the one who gives us the gift of faith and grace to believe in Christ. Now you may ask, well, how can I know if I have spiritual life? Well, how do you know if you're alive physically this morning? I'm not sure about some of you in here right now, but you do have some signs of life. How do you know that you are alive in Christ? Spiritually, there are some vital signs. You should have a heart for the things of God which used to bore you. You love Jesus because he died for your sins. You have a hunger for God's word. You struggle against sins that, don't, that didn't used to concern you. You're growing in the things of God and you experience the forgiveness of your sins. See, all those things are vital signs of life that you are spiritually alive. If you don't care about the things of God, if this is just boring to you, if you don't have a care or concern to read God's Word, if you don't have a care or concern to obey God's Word and listen to what God has to say, then chances are you are spiritually dead, you're still in your sins, and you need to repent and believe the gospel. And so it's only in Jesus that we have new life. Here's the second thing that we need to be reminded about about Jesus' power. Through Jesus' death and resurrection, we have forgiveness of sins. Look at our text here again. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debts that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. One Bible commentator paraphrases this this way. He has forgiven you all your sins. Christ has utterly wiped out the damning evidence of broken laws and commandments which always hung over our heads and has completely annulled it by nailing it over his own head on the cross. Take notice of that last part in verse number 13. Having forgiven all our trespasses. And verse number 14, he says, canceling the record 
of debt, forgiving and canceling. Paul is repeating himself here. Why? Is it because he forgot? Maybe he forgot to eat that morning and, oh, oh did I write that? Oh, whoops, uh, no. He didn't forget. Because the news of forgiveness of sins is just too wonderful. How many of you in here, you don't have to raise your hand, were in a lot of debt before? And you remember that feeling of when you finally paid off the debt and it was gone. What a, what a great feeling that was. Or how many of you, maybe when you were driving, again, don't raise your hands, men, um, you're driving and the police officer pulled you over and you were speeding. You know you were speeding. He knew you were speeding. And he goes up to you and he talks to you and instead of incurring the debt and giving you the ticket and saying, you deserve this, he says, I'm going to let you go. What a relief, right? And so this, this, this thing about this, this forgiveness is too wonderful. We need to hear it over and over again. Don't ever get over the amazing truth that in Christ you have forgiveness of all your sins. All of your transgressions, all of your debt has been wiped away, been taken care of, and it has been canceled. Note two things about this. Number one, God only forgives his way. You see, God couldn't just sweep our sins under the rug. The penalty had to be paid. And if God did not demand the full penalty for our sins, he would not be righteous and he would not be just. He would not be God if a robber killed your mother for a few measly bucks. And he goes before the judge and the judge says, hey, it's all right, you're a good guy, go ahead and leave. You would be outraged. You would expect there be a penalty for that. Why would we not demand anything else less of God? You see, justice requires that lawbreakers pay the penalty for their crimes. The Bible says that in verse, uh, Romans 3.23, that we all have sinned. In Romans 6.23, it says that the wages of sin is death. That's separation from God. There's a penalty for it. And so we all deserve eternal separation from God. We all have what Paul calls here, notice what he says, the record of debt consisting of decrees that stood against us with its legal demands. This record of debt. It's written on paper. Paul says, I got it right here. He says, look at everything that you've done. I have the decree of it. It's been written down. You owe it. It's owed. Somebody has to pay this. Who is going to pay it? Jesus steps forward and says, I'll pay it. I'll take it. And God is able to forgive us, not based upon any good thing that we do, not because we clean ourselves up, but because Jesus says, I will take their debts. I will cancel it. I will pay for it because the wages of sin is what? Death. And that's exactly what Jesus did. What are these demands? You have sinned. You've broken God's holy laws. You are condemned. You will die. You have no hope. You are in debt. And we, become, we come before the bench of God's judgment as lawbreakers 
with thousands of counts against us and God cannot justly forgive us without the penalty being paid. Now you might be thinking, you know what, Mike, I'm a good person. I'm not a terrorist. I'm not a rapist. I'm not a child molester. I've never been arrested. I go to church. I live a moral life. I don't deserve death for my sins. But if you're thinking along those lines, you're failing You're falling into the air that I mentioned earlier. You have too high a view of your own goodness and not and a too low view of God's holiness. You see, when Paul mentions here this record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands, he's referring to the commandments of God's law. That law is against us and hostile towards us because it justly condemns us because we've broken it repeatedly. How good of a person are you? Let's just take the Ten Commandments as a, as a way to figure out how good we really are. Sometimes I've talked to people about Christ and they say things, well, I'm a good person. Well, let's let the Ten Commandments be the judge of that. Uh, probably about a month ago, uh, my family and I, we decided to go through a devotional uh, about learning the Ten Commandments. If you, don't, if you don't know what the Ten Commandments are, if you, don't, if you can't say the Ten Commandments, I encourage you to go through them and, and talk with them. If you have children, talk with them with your children and, and uh, discuss those things. But here's the Ten Commandments found in Exodus 20, uh, beginning in verse number 3. The first commandment is, you shall have no other gods before me. Can you honestly say that you've always obeyed that commandment? Right now, does God rightly have priority over everything in your life? If not, you are guilty of breaking the first commandment. What about the second commandment? Have you ever served an idol instead of God? You say, well, of course not. I'm not some kind of pagan. I'm not over there worshiping idols of stone and uh, wood and gold and silver. But let me ask, what things in your life do you spend more time with than God, your creator? You've made idols of those things. Could your possessions or your career be ruling your life? Let me read to you what Jesus said in uh, Luke chapter 18 about this. In Luke 18, verses uh, 18 through 23, it says, And a ruler asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments, do not commit adultery, do not murder, do not steal, do not bear false witness, honor your father and mother. And he said, all of these I have kept from my youth. He says, I've done them all. When Jesus heard this, he said to him, one thing you still lack, sell all that you have and distribute to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come and follow me. But when he heard these things, he became very sad for he was extremely rich. This man had idols in his life that he was not willing to give up in order to follow Jesus. Third commandment is that we should not take Lord's name in vain. This is using God's holy name to express disgust. You say, that's really one that I really haven't broken. Really? Typing OMG on your text, commenting OMG on social media to express surprise or fear, or anger is the same thing as taking God's name in vain. Even many Christians exclaim things like, Oh, geez, as a word in short for Jesus, or oh, my God. Very few of us honestly can say that we've never taken the Lord's name in vain. By the way, this is how we know that there is a creator God, because 
The very name that God says, do not take in vain, is the name that people use. Have you ever found it interesting that nobody walks around and goes, oh, my Brandon, or oh, my Trump, right? They don't say that. They don't say, oh, my Buddha. How come they don't take those names in vain? They take God's holy and precious saving name in vain. The fourth commandment is to keep the Sabbath holy. You say, well, Christians aren't really under that commandment, are we? Well, my understanding is that we're not under the Jewish Sabbath laws. But there is a New Testament command about not forsaking the assembling with the Lord's people is what Hebrews 10.25 teaches us. And Sunday is the Lord's day. We gather together to worship Christ. I read recently that most Christians now think that if they go to church twice a month, they're committed. That strikes me as odd because that's really only being halfway committed. The fifth commandment is to honor our parents. Honor means to value or treasure. Can any one of you in here claim that you made it all the way through childhood by doing that? No. And it really applies to us as adult children too. We are still to honor our parents, to value or treasure them. The sixth commandment is that we should not murder. Most of us could claim that we've kept that one until we read the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus says... If we've ever been wrongfully angry at somebody, we've murdered him in God's sight, in our hearts. The same applies to commandment seven, not to commit adultery. If you've ever lusted, looked, at, looked after a woman with lust, you've committed adultery in your hearts, according to Jesus. Number eight commands us not to steal. That also applies to cheating on our taxes. You can also steal by taking advantage of your employer, not showing up on time, taking extended paid break or lunch, using company equipment for your own personal use. Number nine is against bearing false witness. Have you always been truthful? And number ten is directed at our hearts by telling us not to covet anything not belonging to us. Are we guilty or not guilty before God? Guilty many times over several times over. And in fact, in James 2.10, it reminds us, for the person who keeps all of the laws except one is as guilty as a person who has broken all of God's laws. That's why we have a huge IOU that is stacked up against us. And that's why this is such great news to see this and read this, that in Jesus, if we are in Jesus, he has canceled all of our sin, every single part of it. So how can we possibly escape the just condemnation of God's holy law? Well, here's the second thing. Jesus paid our debt completely on the cross. Paul piles up these terms to reinforce its wonderful truth. Look what he says here. He says that God has forgiven us all our trespasses. What does that word forgiven mean? It's a powerful word. It comes from the same word as grace. What's grace? It means that God grants forgiveness as a free gift, not as payment to those who earn it. You can't get forgiveness by doing penance or promising to try to do harder. It's a free gift that you can only receive. 
And so God has not only forgiven our transgressions, but notice that little word there. Help me out here. What does he say? He's forgiven us what? All. Say it with me again. All our trespasses. Not just some of them. All of them. Every single one. The ones that we think are just so great and huge and they're crushing us, even down to the little ones that we think don't, aren't really that significant. God has forgiven us all our trespasses. And we need to ask his forgiveness when we sin to restore fellowship with him. But here Paul teaches us that once we have trusted in Christ, we are forgiven all, every single transgression. We don't need to ask God for forgiveness to be saved again and again and again and again and again. It's all been canceled out. It's been wiped clean. Can you imagine if you got the bill from the uh, creditor and it says paid in full and then you were to call him up and say, hey, I'd like to make a payment this week. They'd say, well, it's been paid for. Well, I know, but I, I, I need to make a payment. I, I got to make a payment for this. Let's say, no, it's paid for. You don't have a bill anymore. It's done. Yeah, I know, but I, I, I feel like I still need to make a payment here. You, know, you see how crazy that sounds? Why do we do that in our Christian life? God has forgiven us all of our trespasses. They've been canceled out. And so that transaction was taken care of once for all when we trusted in Jesus Christ as our sin bearer. Paul adds that God has canceled out or erased our IOU, our certificate of debt. It's gone. So not only has he written on it, paid in full, but it's almost like he took it, tore it up in all kinds of pieces and threw it in God's depths of sea, never remember it ever again. As far as the east is from the west, he has removed our transgressions. But how can God do that and still be just and righteous? Now, this is good. I love this. You see, God could not just simply forgive all. The penalty had to be paid. I can't pay it. You can't pay it. Who's going to pay it? Jesus did. Notice what Paul says in verse 14. This he set aside. He took it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. What did he set aside or take out of the way? That record of debts. On the cross, Jesus paid the penalty for every sinner who trusts in him. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. By Jesus paying the penalty, God can both be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus, is what Romans 3.26 says. So the crucial question is, have you put your faith and trust in Jesus. Have you trusted Christ for his death on the cross for your sins? If so, then your debt has been paid in full. If not, why not? Do you think you're going to make it? Do you think somehow, by some way, by just, just the spur of your imagination, that just you're going to stand before God and he's going to say, well, hey, you know what? Man, I saw that you tried really, really hard. And you know, I don't normally do this, but you know, I saw all those times that you were pretty religious and all those times that you helped out and you did things and you know, you're just a great guy. 
So just come on in. No. He's going to say, depart from me, you cursed work of iniquity. I never knew you. And there you will be bound and cast into the lake of fire, reserved for the devil and his angels. And so if that's you, you need Jesus. Maybe you're thinking, I have trusted in Christ, Mike, but I still feel guilty sometimes when I sin. Even if I confess it, turn from it, it keeps coming back to haunt me. Is that guilt from God? Well, if you're truly trusted in Christ and repented of your sin, the answer is no. Your guilt is from Satan, the accuser of the saints. He says, you are not forgiven. You are not justified. God doesn't love you because of what you have done. Listen to what 1 John 2, 1 through 2 says. He says, my dear children, I write this to you so that you will not sin. But if anybody does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins. And not only for ours, but also for the sins of the whole world. You see, Jesus is our advocate. This is a legal term, a person who supports. In this sense, meaning he is our intercessor. He is our comforter. He is our consoler. You need not listen to those condemning words from the accuser anymore. I have here some things. So I think what happens many times is when we, when we sin as, as believers in Christ, we, we feel that we um, are identified by that. And that those accusing voices speak to us and they say, if you're really a Christian, you wouldn't be doing that. If you really love God, you wouldn't be doing that. You must not really love God. You're not saved. And sometimes we have these things because of hypocrisy. Or jealousy. Gluttony. How about materialism? Stubbornness, impatience, gossiping, stealing, blasphemy, worry, coveting, fighting, rebellion, using our tongues for wickedness, complaining, Disobedience, evil thoughts, hatred, bitterness, indifference, boasting, sinful anger, impurity in any type of form, whether it be sexual immorality, fear. All of these things, all of these things, and so much more. You know what Jesus has done to all these? He has nailed them to his cross. And they have been forgiven. And even though, even though we may still fall into those sinful habits, because we have, yes, we have been delivered from the power of sin, but we have not been delivered from the presence of sin yet. Jesus has forgiven us of all of our sins. And we need not listen to those voices that say, you do these things? You're not a Christian. You're not a Christian. Because I love this. Look at this next verse here. This is the last thing. Thirdly, Jesus has given you victory over the forces of evil. 
This he set aside, that canceling of that debt, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Paul continues his point of what Jesus accomplished on the cross. When Christ was crucified, God took what looked like Satan's greatest moment of triumph, the death of the sinless Lord of glory, and turned it into Satan's greatest defeats. On the cross, Jesus accomplished perfect redemption for all of his people. We were captives in Satan's domain of darkness, but through Jesus' death, God has rescued us, is what uh, Colossians 1.13 tells us. And so when Paul speaks of God disarming the rulers and authorities, the picture here is of a Roman general's triumph. They conquered the enemy, and what has taken place is they've taken the enemy captive, they have stripped them of all their armor and their weapons, and they're leading them and parading them through the streets, And they're saying, we won, we won, we won, we won. And that's exactly what Christ has done. Because he died on the cross and he resurrected from the grave, Christ has taken all of the enemies captive. And he says, I won, I won, I won, I won. James, let me borrow you here just for a second. Now, James, you're going to be the enemy, okay? So imagine, here's James, okay? He was a tyrant. I mean, a ruthless tyrant. I mean, he was going through the towns. He was burning villages and taking whatever he wanted to take. And here comes the righteous king with his army, and he defeats him. And he takes him captive. He strips him of all of his armor. He says, oh, you were so powerful. Everybody trembled in your sight. And they've taken him captive. And now they're parading him through the village and say, See, look, we got him. We got him. He doesn't have power anymore. We got him. We're in control. He's not anymore. We got him. We got him. Yeah, go ahead. Throw those eggs. Go ahead. <laughs> Thank you, James. Do you get the picture here? What, what Paul is trying to tell us? He says, Jesus has given you victory over the forces of evil. And so whatever it is, whatever this sin is, this sin habit that you deal with and you struggle with, I want you to know that Jesus has conquered every sin possible in your life. And not only that, but he's taken these enemy forces captive. And he says, he disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. How do we know that Christ has won the victory? How do we know that we have the victory? His victory was confirmed when God raised him from the dead. And we who believe are raised with him, seated in heaven with him, is what Ephesians 2, 6 says. So when the enemy accuses you, tell him to take it up with Jesus in his shed blood. James 4, 7 says, Submit therefore to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Satan has no power over us because Jesus died and was raised on our behalf. Has the power of Jesus changed you? Are you living in complete victory over your sin? There are some of you here today that you are not saved. You've not been born again. And it's my prayer, it's even the prayer of even others here, and the elders here, that you would believe the gospel, that God would awaken you to your spiritual need of Jesus, and that you would trust in Jesus and believe in Jesus. 
And if God is drawing you, do not harden your heart. Today is the day of salvation. Repent and believe. And for those of us that do know Christ, remember that we have great power in Jesus of what he has accomplished on the cross. Don't be held captive by the empty philosophies of this world telling you other than what Scripture teaches us of who Jesus is and what Jesus has accomplished on the cross. Let's pray together. If you're interested in more information about our church or knowing the peace that Jesus gives, visit our website at lifeattheridge.church.